Welcome to the One Crossing Podcast. Here you can find past sermons along with other exclusive content. Our prayer is that God will move in your life even when you are on the go. We hope you enjoy this message. Well, I don't know if anybody's told you this yet today. If it hasn't happened to you, shame on the people around you. But I love you. I really do. I love this church. I was writing letters this week to people at our different locations, and I was just thinking of the names and faces from each and every single one of them. And I really do. I just genuinely love you all. I love this church. I love the opportunity that we get to be together and gather and grow and reach people. And it is just an incredible privilege to be numbered among you. If you came with someone today, would you turn to them? Just tell them, hey, I love you. Yeah, you deserve to hear that every so often. You Just as a new rule, but before church gets going in any of our locations, just turn to a person next to you, hopefully, you know, the people you came with you, and just say, hey, love you, boo. Yeah, if you came with a, all right, well, we'll deal with that at a different sermon. Okay, the other thing is you guys have made an incredibly good decision. You know what that incredibly good decision was? I'll tell you. Gallup released a mental wellness uh, survey. They do this every November. And this year's uh, stats were alarming because the people who rated their mental health as, as excellent had taken a precipitous drop over years past. And it was across almost all of the demographics. If you were a um, Republican, uh, they said that uh, it went down. But if you're a Democrat, it went down. Oh. Uh, If you're white, it went down. If you're non-white, their words, not mine, it went down. If you make less than 40,000 a year, people evaluating their mental wellness across went down. If you make between $40,000 a year and $100,000 a year, guess what happened? It went down. If you make more than $100,000 a year, guess what happened? It went down, yeah. Uh, If you're a man, it went down. If you're a woman, we all know that they're tougher than us, it went Yeah, it went down. You're going, well, then who? Who who did he go up for? Uh, If you come to church every so often, or not at all, guess what happened? It went, yeah, it went down. There was actually only one group of people that their mental wellness has increased. And it was people who go to church every single week. So you guys are either keeping a good trend going or you're starting a good habit. Either way, now they didn't break it down whether it was online or in person, so for those of you online, but to the rest of you gathering in our different locations, welcome. You are on your first step to a better mental wellness until I preach this sermon, okay? So I think that's true of other churches. I've got a tough sermon for you. If you bear with me, I think you'll find something good at the very end, but you gotta gotta bear with me. We're in week three of this sermon series, Mystery in the Manger. The first week, Jerry talked about how can we trust 
Matthew and uh, Luke's account. Can we trust the eyewitnesses of who Jesus is? And in the second week, I talked about the genealogy of Jesus, which shows us that the mystery in the manger is indeed the king of the Jews. And if you didn't watch either of those two sermons, I can't encourage you enough to go either on our website or on our YouTube channel and watch those because I believe that they will be a blessing in your heart. This week, we're gonna talk about predictions or uh, the more Bible word uh, for it would be prophecy. Now, this isn't gonna be one of those sermons where I tell you what stock to buy, when the world is gonna come to an end. It's not one of those sermons. It's about what does the Old Testament tell us about Jesus? Now, predictions have been famously wrong. We've experienced them in our own lives. Uh, here's one that none of you guys were around for, at least I hope not. In 1876, Western Union issued this internal memo. The telephone has too many shortcomings to be seriously considered a means of communication. <laughs> How about this one? In 1880, Henry Morton, the president of the Stevens Institute of Technology, which by the way, what technology was around in 1880 that they needed an institute? Like horseshoes? Like what was there? But this is what they said. Everyone acquainted with this subject will recognize it as a complete failure. He was referring, of course, to Thomas Edison's light bulb. Missed it by that much, okay? How about this one? Uh, the president of Michigan Savings Bank persuaded Henry Ford's attorney not to invest in the Ford Motor Company by making this brilliant statement. The horse is here to stay. The automobile is only a novel fad. Uh, Clifford Stoll, in 1995, who was a writer for Newsweek in an article entitled The Internet Blah, made this statement. The truth is, no online database will replace your daily newspaper. To those of you gathering at all of our locations who don't know what a newspaper is, that's what your grandma puts underneath her birds, okay? That's what that is. In 2007, Steve Ballmer made this statement, and I think you guys will get a, a kick out of this one because most of you are carrying it. He said, he was the CEO of Microsoft, he said there is no chance that the iPhone will get any significant market share. In 2001, people made some predictions about me. I was voted most likely to become president of the United States of America by my high school class. I was also voted most likely to be impeached by my own party. <laughs> it's like, people, the more you don't know me, the more you like me. The more you know me, you're like, we gotta get this guy out of here. He's crazy, okay? There are all kinds of predictions that take place all around us, but there are very, some very specific predictions that take place in the Bible. And today, I wanna show you what those predictions, what those prophecies point to. Some say that the Old Testament is the New Testament concealed, and the New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. I'm going to make some statements, and then I'm going to tell you where I found them. The Messiah will be of the line of Abraham, of the line of Isaac, of the line of Jacob. He will be a descendant of David. He will be born in the town of Bethlehem. He will be preceded by a forerunner who will proclaim his coming. He will perform signs of healing. The eyes of the blind will be opened. The ears of the deaf unstopped. The lame will leap like a deer and the mute tongue will shout for joy. He will be from Nazareth. He will be born of a virgin. He will be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. He will be 
called out of Egypt. He will come riding on a donkey. He will be pierced. He will be beaten, but not a bone of his body broken. His garments would be divided up among um, at his feet. He died, but he won't stay dead. All of those statements that I just made, where did I get those from? If you're smart, you'll say the Bible, which is a good answer, very good answer. But let's be more specific. Everything that I just told you didn't come from the New Testament. Everything I just told you was stuff you can read in your Old Testament. Why is that important? If you are here last week, I talked about that if you have like a paper Bible, there's the Old Testament and then there's a the New Testament. In between, there's usually like a, a blank piece of paper. And I talked about that blank piece of paper represents 400 years of silence where God did not speak which means everything I just read was uh, prophesied, was written about Jesus 400 years at a minimum before he arrived. See, the New Testament is God's covenant with you and me. The Old Testament is God's covenant with the Jewish people. And everything I'm talking to you about, they are prophesying. They're saying, this is who the Messiah will be. The challenge was the Jews were ready for a Messiah. They just didn't recognize him. Even though they had all of these prophecies, they were ready. They were waiting, eagerly awaiting a Messiah. They just didn't recognize him. I want you to hold on to that because I'm going to circle back to it at the very end of my message. It's been said that you can't read a single page of the Old Testament without it referencing the coming of Jesus Christ. And all of these prophecies that Jesus fulfilled make us have to answer some really tough questions. How did Jesus answer these prophecies? How could he show up 400 years at the earliest from when these prophecies were made? How did he fulfill them? Jesus calls us to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. This sermon series has really kind of spent a little bit of time helping you to love God with your mind. Why is that important? Because sometimes when you don't feel him experientially, you still need to know that he exists. Sometimes when you don't feel like everything's going the way you want it to, you need some anchors in your mind to help you stay true to your faith. Part of the reason we have these prophecies is for us to see how God is working for us to know things to be true. So how did Jesus fulfill these prophecies? And you might be a skeptic, a person who just doesn't accept things at face value. And I can sympathize with those kind of people because that's how I'm operated. I'm rarely the first person to buy into something. I need to investigate it. And if you're trying to figure out how did Jesus fulfill all of these prophecies, one of the arguments you would probably leverage against it is maybe it was just coincidence. Maybe Jesus just kind of accidentally fulfilled these prophecies. I mean, how hard could it be? Well, I'll tell you. For Jesus to just fulfill eight prophecies, a group of smart people got together and they started to run the calculations on what are the chances for one person to fulfill just eight of the prophecies of Jesus. Here's the number. The chance is one in a hundred million billion. Now, since I don't have that kind of money, it's hard for me to articulate what that looks like. So let me give you a picture. If you were to take the entire state of Iowa, the entire state of Missouri, and the entire state of Illinois combined, and you were to cover them three feet deep in silver dollars, this is what I do late at night. I run math problems for you because I love you. If you were to cover Illinois, Iowa, and Missouri three feet deep, all three of them, three feet deep with silver dollars, and you were to take one silver dollar and you were to paint it red, 
And I were to tell you, go out and hide that silver dollar anywhere in the three feet inside of these three states. And then we were to take a person and we were to blindfold them and set them out somewhere inside of those three states and tell the person who's been blindfolded, you only get one chance to pull up the red coin. That would be the same number of chances of Jesus fulfilling just eight prophecies. Slim pickings. What about 48 prophecies? We move from eight to 48. Peter uh, Stoner got together with all of his math friends, which that sounds like a really cool party. And they ran the math on what it would take to, uh, for Jesus to coincidentally fulfill 48 prophecies. I'm, I'm gonna make sure I say this number correctly. I have to look at uh, some notes here. That is equal to a chance of one in a trillion, 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 trillion. I also don't understand that number. So let me try to give you a better picture. That is equal to the total number of atoms, atoms, A-T-O-M-S, not Adam. You're like, I know Adam. I actually know two Adam. I dated an Adam. It's not atoms, atoms, A-T-O-M-S. The total number of atoms in a trillion, 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 billion universes, the same size as our universe. And that's just 48 prophecies. I don't even know what math to use to tell you because Jesus fulfills over three hundred prophecies. So I think we can rule coincidence out. Well, what if they just altered the gospel? What if they just said, hey, we're going to make Jesus fit this Old Testament prophetic narrative? Totally fair. You'll remember from Jerry's first sermon that we found out that there were all of these checks and balances that as the gospel writers were recording the events of Jesus's life, there were eyewitnesses who could have stood up and said, hey, no, that's not what happened. That's not what he did. That did not take place. There's no way. You also had the Jewish leaders who hated Jesus at any moment in time. They could have stopped and stood up and said, that's not true. The furthermore, uh, even in all of the Jewish writings, even though they refer to Jesus in all kinds of derogatory names, they never once make the claim that Jesus fulfilling the prophecies was falsified. Even the people who couldn't stand Jesus can't bring an accusation about him not fulfilling the prophecies about the Messiah. Furthermore, why would the people deliberately alter the gospel and then die for what they know to be a lie. People die every day and people die for a really good cause, but people never die for something that they believe to be false or that they know to be false. So if it wasn't coincidence, if it wasn't altered, what if Jesus just decided to intentionally fulfill the prophecies? What if he just decided to go, hey, I'm going to be this guy. I'm gonna do all the things that the promised Messiah is gonna do. He's supposed to ride on a donkey, I'll ride on a donkey. He's supposed to spend time in Nazareth, I'll spend time in Nazareth. That makes sense, except that there's enough other prophecies that you can't intentionally fulfill. For instance, where you're born. You can't intentionally fulfill, I'm gonna be from Bethlehem. You also can't intentionally fulfill that your mom's gonna be a virgin. Heard that's a pretty tough one to pull off. 
You also, you also can't get your enemies to agree to betray you for 30 pieces of silver. You also can't get the people that are killing you to break the bones on both sides of you of the, of the guys that you're being crucified with, but not break your bones. You can't get the people that hate you to gamble for your clothes at your feet. There's a whole bunch of things that Jesus couldn't have intentionally fulfilled, although there's some things that he could have intentionally fulfilled. But again, we're not talking about one or two prophecies, we're talking about 300 prophecies. Now you might be going, Clayton, what do you mean by prophecies? Like, what do these prophecies look like? I'm gonna take you through a couple of these, and I think, especially, even if you're here for the very first time, like you lost a bet and someone dragged you here, Come back next week, Jerry's got a great message for you. But even if you barely know Jesus, I think what I'm about to read to you, you're gonna go, I think I know who that sounds like. I'm gonna take you to Psalm 22. This was written a thousand years before Jesus ever put his feet in the sand. Thousand years. And you tell me what you think this sounds like. Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. By night, and I find no rest. Yet you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the one Israel praises. In you, our ancestors put their trust. They trusted and you delivered them. To you, they cried out and were saved. In you, they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man scorned by everyone and despised by all the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let the Lord deliver him, since he delights in him. Some of you who are familiar with what happened with Jesus when he was on the cross, you remember that they came by and they hurled insults at Jesus. And they said, if you are the son of the God, come down. They would put the crown of thorns on his head and they would hit him and beat him and then they'd say, prophesy who hit you. This, whatever's being described here, we know didn't happen to David. It must be happening to somebody else. Let's keep going. Yet you brought me out of the womb. You made me trust in you even at my mother's breast. From birth I was cast on you. From my mother's womb you have been my God. Do not be far from me, for trouble is near and there is no one to help. I am poured out like water and my bones are all out of joint. My heart has turned to wax and it has melted within me. I am poured out like water. Jesus has been beaten and flogged. His body is losing blood as fast as he can. He's being poured out. His bones are all out of joint. When you crucify somebody, as you continue to try to breathe and you pull yourself up, eventually your shoulders become dislocated. My heart has turned to wax when they pierced Jesus' heart. Blood and water flowed out. I could get into this at a later date, but you can see something's happening. This did not happen to David. Who is David talking about a thousand years before Jesus? Let's keep going in the text. They pierced my hands and my feet. This would make no sense to a Jewish person because crucifixion as a form of execution hasn't even been invented yet. 
It would be like you and I reading David and saying, he called me on the cell phone, he said, I can't answer right now, and he texted me back. Like, they would have no understanding of this. It would be like saying, hey, I just went in to the jail and they are going to uh, kill me with a lethal injection. Hasn't been invented yet. He's talking about something that nobody else has ever seen because crucifixion doesn't come, across, come along until the Roman Empire. So who is he talking about? Because this didn't happen to David. My bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. Who is David talking about? Who does that story sound like? A thousand years before Jesus, David writes something that you can't help read and go, that sounds like Jesus. I'll give you another one, Isaiah 53. This one's written 700 years before Jesus shows up. You tell me who you think this sounds like. Who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. Then it gets weird. It spent the first couple verses kind of talking about who this person was, but then it starts to get more specific. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Do you, are you noticing the change in tense? Are you noticing who they're referring to? Our, there's this collective pain, there's collective suffering that's being borne by a single person. Well, we know that's not Isaiah. Who's he talking about? Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was, uh-oh, here's that word again, pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed. And the word you keep seeing is that one individual, he is going through something for the collective. Who could they be referring to? Let's keep going. The punishment that brought us peace, collective, was on him, singular. And by his singular wounds, we collectively are, everybody say that word. Who does that sound like to you? Who has the ability to heal all of us? I don't know. Who's he talking about? We like sheep have all gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So God is laying on one person all of the sin and suffering of all people for all time. Who is he talking about? He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. If you read about Jesus in front of the religious leaders, and you read about Jesus in front of the government officials, they're putting him on trial, they're questioning him, and Jesus, for the most part, just keeps remaining silent. How bizarre. 
That the very Jesus who's about ready to be thrown off a cliff by an angry mob, who just eventually turns his head and just walks through the angry mob. The very Jesus who speaks and people come back to life. The very Jesus who speaks and people are healed is on trial, being asked to mount a defense, knowing that his words could disintegrate the very people that were asking him questions. And he chooses not to use his power. And like a sheep before its shear is silent, he does not open his mouth. Who does this sound like? By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. Yet who of his generation protested for he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people, he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. If you go home and you read the last chapter in Matthew and Mark and Luke and John, you'll read about his burial. Actually, you may have to read the second to last chapter for some of you'll read about his burial. You'll find out that Jesus was buried in a rich man's tomb. The rich man's name was Joseph of Arimathea in a tomb that he had purchased for himself and had just cut out. Nobody had ever been laid in it. Who is Isaiah talking about? Though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth, yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and to cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. So whoever dies, he's not gonna stay dead. And by his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great and he will divide the despoils with the strong because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sins of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Who does that sound like? I think even a person who hasn't been to church an awful lot would go, some of that sounds like Jesus. Except this was written 700 years before Jesus ever walked the earth. I'll give you another one. I'm gonna take you all the way back to the very beginning. Genesis chapter three. Most of you know the story. God has put Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. He's given them the entire place to do whatever they want to do. But he said, listen, this one tree in the middle of the garden, don't eat from that tree. You can hang out over here. You can eat all the stuff over there. You can do all that kind of fun stuff. But just don't eat from this tree. Eve finds herself in a conversation with Satan and he begins to slowly lure her in and tempt her into eating from the tree that God said, whatever you do, don't eat from that tree. And so Eve took a bite of the food and then she gave it to her husband. And because men cannot resist a woman who brings food, he ate it. And that's how we got vegetables. You didn't know this, but that was the very first broccoli. Okay, (laughs) I'm joking. So now we have a sin problem. And so God steps in and he starts to have a conversation. He's gonna have a conversation with Eve for a little bit and then he's gonna shift to having a conversation with Satan. And I want you to pay attention because nestled in verse 15 is what theologians call the very first gospel. I want you to see if you can notice it. Genesis chapter three, then the Lord God said to the woman, what is it you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this. So he's speaking to Satan. Cursed are you above all livestock and all animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat the dust all the days of your life. Look at verse 15. And I will put enmity 
between you and the woman. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. This word for enmity is a fierce opposition and hostility. God is gonna put this enmity in the woman. Eve used to listen to Satan systematically or sympathetically, but now because of what has happened, her attitude has changed. She feels guilt and shame and she recognizes that she's gonna need help from God to resist the temptations of the devil. God wasn't gonna force her to hate Satan. He would give her the ability to hate what Satan does. God would give that as a gift. Now, inside of here are called these seed promises. And verse 15 talks about two things that happen, that there is this seed of Satan, this offspring of Satan, and there is this offspring of the woman. The offspring of the woman are people who are in a relationship with Jesus Christ. The offspring of Satan are people who are not in a relationship with Jesus Christ, who are controlled. They are their own God. They are in charge. They have no Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. They are their own Lord and Savior. And you got these two camps. And people who have Jesus Christ, the Lord and Savior, God does not handcuff them to Jesus. He gives them free will. And so when you and I choose to walk away from God and choose to follow our own lustful desires, we leave the seed of of the woman and we become the seed of Satan. And by God's grace, people who are of the seed of Satan, through God's grace and Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, can become seed of the woman. The seed of Satan leads to destruction. The seed of the woman leads to life. And then nestled inside of this, it pushes another agenda forward that there's going to be this final conflict. The verb tense and the pronouns shift and it starts to use you. It's as if the serpent who was there on that day, Satan who was there on that day, will eventually be met in a battle by a future champion from among the seeds of the woman. You'll remember in the genealogy, they take it all the way back to Adam and Eve. Out of the seed of the woman comes a champion, and his name is Jesus. And on Calvary, the battle is played out, where Satan gets his victory, or so he thinks, as the Son of God is crucified on behalf of you and me. And Satan thinks he's won. And he indeed strikes at the heel of the offspring of the woman. The place where that took place is actually called Golgotha, also known as the place of the skull. It was there that Satan tried to bite the heel of Jesus Christ, and Jesus Christ crushed the head of the enemy. Why does this matter? You and I can't really enjoy the good news until we recognize the bad news. The bad news is that you and I, we have a sin problem Even worse than that is the sin problem that you and I have, we can't fix. If we could fix it, Jesus wouldn't have had to show up. And you have an enemy, Satan, who is out to destroy you every single minute of every single day. He wants to destroy your marriage. He wants to destroy your relationships. He is out to destroy you. He has tried all the time to lure you away from all the things that will lead to the life that you were designed to live. 
There isn't enough time at all of our locations for us to do a little testimony time, but I bet all of us have a story where we have been pulled away from our purpose and it it carries some of our biggest scars and our deepest regrets, and for some of us, our darkest pain. We have an enemy, and we have an enemy that we can't defeat. And the good news is, God sent one to defeat him. And so we don't just have an enemy, we have a savior, a promised Messiah. God doesn't let us go eight verses after the woman commits the first sin before he starts talking about his solution. And if you're looking for the solution, you'll find him in a manger, but he won't stay there. You'll find him walking planet earth, preaching the good news of Jesus Christ, talking about the kingdom of heaven is near, but he doesn't stay on earth proclaiming that message. Eventually he climbs on the cross, but Jesus doesn't stay on the cross. He gets laid in a tomb, but Jesus doesn't stay in a tomb. Three days later, he raises from the dead and he ascends into heaven, but he doesn't stay in heaven. The Bible says he's coming back for his own, for those who are of the seed of Christ. The Jews were waiting for a Messiah. They just didn't recognize him. They were ready for him. They just didn't recognize him. You and I, our problem is the exact opposite. When Jesus comes back, we will have no problem recognizing him. The Bible says that the trumpets will sound, that the clouds will part, and the sun will descend, and everybody on planet Earth will bow on their knees and proclaim that Jesus is Lord. We will have no problem recognizing him. The question I have for you is, will you be ready for him? I want you to think about that as we move to this time of decision. Thank you for joining us. A special thank you to those of you that choose to give to this ministry. It's because of your generosity that this ministry is possible. You can click the link in the description to give now or visit thecrossing.net forward slash podcast for more information. If you enjoy the podcast, be sure to subscribe and share with your friends, tagging One Crossing on social media. Thank you so much for listening.